Hey, before we get into this episode, I've got a favor to ask of you. We're starting a new segment on In Context called Ask Dr. E, and I've got a promo that I want you to listen to, so check it out. Your call has been forwarded to an automated voice messaging system. Michael Easley. Is not available. At the tone, please record your message. When you've finished recording, you may hang up or press 1 for more options. Hey, Dad. Tana. Hey, okay, I've been thinking about in context, and I had an idea that I want to run past you. So, you know how all of my friends, lots of your friends, love to pick your brain about, like, random theological questions or wondering what a Bible verse means? Okay, what if we tried a call-in show where our listeners can actually call in and leave you a voicemail with their questions. And then we'll play their questions and you can answer them in the studio. And I don't know, you know how your students at Moody Bible Institute used to call you Dr. E? Maybe we call it like, Ask Dr. E. Okay, I don't know, think about it, get back to me, bye. Okay friends, now is your chance. How many times have you been reading in your Bible and thought, what on earth does that mean? Or maybe you've grappled with some theological concepts like predestination, the Trinity, or how do slaves, women, and homosexuality change from Old Testament to New Testament today? Or I don't know, but whatever it is that you've been pondering, maybe you've thought, I wish I could ask Michael Easley what he thinks about this. Well, now is the time you can ask Dr. E. Seriously, call us. Call us at 615 281-9694. Next time you're reading your Bible in the morning, I don't care if it's 5 a.m., call us and leave a voicemail. This is a phone line set up specifically for this. A human is not going to answer your call. You are not going to wake anyone up day or night. A voicemail will pick up. So next time you're wondering, what does this mean? Big question, small question. We want to hear it. 615-281-9694. Call us, leave a voicemail, and Michael will answer your question on the show. And if you're just too shy to call, you can always send us an email at question at michaelincontext.com. But seriously, call us, 615-281-9694. I think this is going to be a blast, but we need your help. You've got to call in with your questions. Save it in your phone, write it on a sticky note, and keep it in your Bible. Ask Dr. E. 615-281-9694. Michael Easley. Is available. At the tone, please record your message. How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the Word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's Word and apply it to your life. In Context. We are wrapping up the little letter of 1 Peter tonight. And uh, we're going to look at just a few verses in the last chapter of the book, verses 12 and 13 and 14. And then I want to review some of the lessons, the highlights. You know this already, but the New Testament letters are somewhat formulaic. Uh, We know about didactic teaching. We have narrative. We have prose. We have history. We have chronology. When you think of Pauline literature and and Petrine, Peter uh, and James to some degree, these are didactic. They're teaching letters. And there was an audience in mind. Sometimes we're so far removed from this stuff, we, you know, we look at it in, a, in, the, in an improper way. But in vision, the apostle writing to people that he knew. And these were the ones who are scattered. They live in a place that's not their home. And he's trying to encourage them. Probably Nero is, is coming to power. Well, he's in power, but he's coming to the point where he, he will persecute Christians. He'll burn Christians alive. He'll torture them. And so a lot's going on in the near future of this letter. But there were formulaic things when they wrote letters. We might have, you know, we don't do it anymore because 
I mean, some of you still might write real letters or type real letters, but you put a date, you put your address, maybe if in a business form, and you put dear so-and-so, and then you had a pair, and I don't know how many of you still write this way, but the first sentence of your paragraph is supposed to be a, a purpose sentence that explains what's coming in the paragraph. And it's supposed to be an outline, basically, as you write the letter. And then when you conclude, you summarize the letter, and then you put it sincerely or yours truly or respectfully or hugs and kisses or exes or whatever you do. And then you might put your name at the, your full name at the bottom, Michael Easley, and you might sign it above. That would be a formulaic letter. And Paul and Peter do this to a large degree. And so we're going to see a summary and I'll call it a concluding greeting, which seems a little bit like a train wreck in our mind, but that's really what it is. It's, it's, he's greeting them in conclusion, and then finally a benediction, and then we'll make some applications. We'll review some. So verse 12, uh, through Sylvanius, our brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. The identity of Sylvanus is somewhat debated. It's, he's probably the same individual as Silas, also mentioned in other parts of the New Testament, uh, some 13 times alone in the book of Acts. Um, just like we have Cephas and Peter, Saul and Paul, and then we have probably Sylvanus and Silas. Um, he's mentioned in league with Paul. He was part of Paul's traveling group. Uh, many times you can chase this down in a concordance if you'd like. But Peter here gives us this epitaph on him. It is, it is interesting. He calls him a faithful brother. And uh, this leads many to think that Sylvanus was Peter's amanuensis, a word you may or may not be familiar with. Um, an amanuensis was a person who wrote the letter that Peter or Paul would dictate. And so when Paul writes, see with what large letters I'm writing you, the, the sort of um, dubious history is Paul didn't do the actual writing, and amanuensis did, and in the end he signs his name to it to verify this is indeed what I spoke to my amanuensis who transcribed it. And so more than likely, Sylvanus is his amanuensis, or we might think of it as a scribe. Uh, scribes and amanuensis weren't simply people who took dictation. There was probably more of an interaction with the disciple and the apostle as they crafted this. Obviously, this is the Holy Spirit who's inspiring Peter to write this letter. We're not taking inspiration out, but I think the crafting of it could certainly have been through both the apostle as well as the amanuensis. Exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God is a summary sentence of the whole letter of 1 Peter. It's the same word he used in chapter 5, verse 1, if you notice in your Bible. And I love to look for bookends. is a simple way of talking about it literature-wise. And I think Peter is intentionally using it in chapter 5, verse 1. And here as he concludes his letter. Exhortation, the same thing we discussed. Testifying, uh, we think, again, it becomes a Christian word. Uh, testifying is just telling what you know. What you've seen and what you've heard. You're giving a testimony. Put it in a courtroom. It's probably a better way of thinking of it than a Christian testimony. Because a Christian testimony, after all, is simply telling what you know, telling what you've seen, telling what you've heard, telling what's true, telling what you've experienced. You're giving an eyewitness, an experiential testimony. Uh, Hebert recommends to translate it confirmation, which I think is also a good nuance the way we use English language. This is the true grace of God. Wayne Grudem writes, observing the combination of the moral command and the factual doctrinal teaching. The entire way is described in the letter. The entire Christian life is one of grace. God daily bestows blessings, strength, help, forgiveness, and fellowship with him. All of when we need None which we ever deserved. All is of grace every day. All which we need, none which we ever deserve. That's a good definition of grace. And then finally, the imperative, stand firm in it. Another one of Peter's command words. I want you to stand firm in this. From the moment you trust Christ, by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourself is a gift of God that no one can boast. Now, stand in that. Position yourself in it. Brace yourself for it. Be ready for the punch. Be ready for the throw. You want to be emboldened by that. And that's the imperative command. Interesting, it doesn't say take on a fight, uh, go after the devil. We talked about that in weeks past. Stand. It's to me. Stand in what you know. 
Staying in what you believe, you're on good, solid foundation. Well, the concluding greeting, verses 13 and 14, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greeting, and my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be with you all who are in Christ. Now, she who is in Babylon is a cryptic expression that, frankly, nobody knows what it means. It's one of these, you know, if you took all the big, tough, difficult textual problems and, and uh, some transcription problems, let's call them for ease, ease uh, a Bible this size, if you took all the big problems, the ending of Mark's gospel, they'd fit on about two pages of your Bible. Big problems. And those problems aren't substantial theologically, but they're hard for translate. Kiss the sun in the Psalms. Nobody knows what that means. Nobody knows how to translate it. It's just one of those, ah, it's a, it's a you know, legend of the fall. It happens. Uh, she who is in Babylon, we don't know. Uh, some think it's Peter's wife, and they tie it strangely to Matthew 18, 14, about you know, the apostles could have a wife if they wanted. He was indeed married. Um, they sew it with 1 Corinthians 9, 5, I don't know. Uh, there's no information anywhere that this was his wife. And why would he call her she who is in Babylon? Doesn't sound like a compliment, does it? Um, Marshall sums up the theories really well. The nickname Babylon expresses the fact that Christians felt themselves to be exile in a foreign land. What have we talked about the entire letter of 1 Peter? People that live in a land's not their home. They're probably never going to get to go back to what was home. So that fits very well. He continues, a city of luxury and sin, the oppressor of God's people. It is used to derive the way in which the Babylon of the Old Testament was the oppressor of God's people. The Jews applied the nickname to Rome after the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., but long before this date, Roman writers themselves began to characterize their own city as another Babylon in view of its luxury and increasing decadence. Babylon was a palatial empire at one time. A good friend of mine, Dr. Charlie Dyer, was able to go over to Babylon uh, during the height of Saddam Hussein. And he went under this crazy uh, academic loophole of a music ethnocologist, which he was not. But he was a PhD, and he had street cred. He was an academic. So he wrote a paper on the music ethnocology of Babylon in that time period. And he went over, and they told him not to take pictures. He took pictures the whole time, and they didn't stop him. And what Hussein had done in rebuilding, thinking that he was the next Nebuchadnezzar, I don't know if you remember any of this. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. But the palatial rebuilding he did of Babylon was unparalleled. And so when I read Marshall's comments about this, it, it makes a lot of sense. Babylon would be a very common thing to the primarily Jewish-believing audience who understood this story. Babylon in the Old Testament was a perennial enemy of Israel. They were wealthy. They were opulent. They were powerful. And so... It, this, this reference is sort of summing up again, expresses the fact Christians felt themselves as exiles in a foreign land. Chosen together with you connects the cryptic statement, she who's in Babylon. It takes us, I think, back all the way to chapter 1-1 as Peter closes out the book when he talks about aliens who are scattered, who are chosen. He reminds his readers uh, that this was, your salvation was God's divine initiative. You didn't wander around dispersed and say, oh, it's Jesus. Oh, we've been wrong all these years. This wasn't of your own accord. This was something that God pulled you, he chose you, he elected you, and it was his initiative in your life. The mention of Mark here is a nice little insight on the story of John Mark. Some of us remember John Mark, of course, traveled with Paul. He, uh, he has a falling out with Paul. We don't know precisely what happens, but they, uh, Paul, he goes with, with Barnabas. And then later in Paul's life, you remember, he asked for Mark to come. So there's been some type of maturity, reconciliation, misunderstanding that was cleared up. But it's interesting the caveat where uh, Peter calls him my son. It's a very endearing term, and it doesn't mean literally his son. It's probably his child in the faith. And I would tentatively, I would say in pencil, it may well have been Peter was the one who first picked John Mark 
to be part of the larger disciple group. And as, as this thing is happening after Christ has been raised from the dead and ascends, is now they're coalescing this group of disciples. You've got the apostles and the disciples who are working with them. And so John Mark was one of these growing young men like Timothy would have been uh, along with the ministry. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Now, four times in your New Testament, we have something like this. Three times we have Paul saying, greet one another, actually four, with a holy kiss. Romans 16, 16, 1 Corinthians 16, 20, 2 Corinthians 13, 12, and 1 Thess 5, 26. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And here, Peter says, with a kiss of love. Now, you, many of you have traveled to the Middle East, you've traveled to France, you've traveled to Europe. It's very common for some uh, new friend um, to come up and kiss you on both cheeks. Very common in certain cultures. In some cultures, anathema for anybody to touch anybody. In this culture, uh, obviously, patently, it was common for them to kiss each other on the cheek. Of course, the rich irony of the kiss was Judas betrays, which is the ultimate insult because that's how you greet someone. You would kiss them on both cheeks. Maybe not literally planting your lips, but the idea we see people, you know, each side, Spaniards do this. A lot of cultures do this. It's an endearing, affectionate, welcoming thing that, uh, that people do to one another. Um, when you bring it in our culture right now, uh, le- the less tactile, the better. Uh, the brave new world. Uh, so the cultural, contextual is important with these applications, but that's what it was. I had a friend, who, when he would, he would guest preach a lot, and he would say, stand up and, and say hello to everybody and greet each other with a holy kiss or as close as you feel comfortable with that. He would, it was, it was kind of cool. And everybody go, ooh. Husbands and wife would kiss, but nobody else would. Um, Peace be to you all who are in Christ. Peter was probably from the southern of Galilee. Notice he says, you all. <laughs> Shalom in Hebrew, of course, meant peace. In Greek, it's the word irenia, which becomes the word irene. So if you're irene, your middle name, your mom, someone, irene, that means peace in Greek. It was a very common bidding, again, especially for the Jew. Paul is going to talk about the grace and peace a little bit more. Peter's going to end his letter on peace. I think he's tying it back to the opening of his book. He reminded them of the divine initiative of salvation, how he began with peace, and now he ends with peace. These are people that are suffering for the sake of the gospel. They're suffering because they believe in Christ. They're being persecuted. Little does even perhaps Peter know the persecution they're about to face. Um, let's put it in our language. They're anxious, they're depressed, they're worried, they're afraid, they're, they're unsure of their finances, they're unsure of their food, they're unsure of their health, their safety. They're going to be anxious. And so the apostle Peter is bidding them, peace be with you. Peace be with you. God's peace be with you. That is as applicable now as it was then. find it fascinating. If you want to do a great study in the book, Gospel of John, uh, study the word troubled, and I, it depends on your English translation. It's five or eight times, depending what translation you use. But Jesus is troubled in his spirit. The waters are troubled. you got to do a little homework to see the Greek. But there's a number of times John uses the word troubled, and Jesus will, he's troubled in his spirit. He's troubled at the Gethsemane. And then in John 14, 15, 16, really 13 through 18 is the upper room discourse. What does he tell his apostles? Let not your heart be. Same word that he himself has been wrestling with, with the God man. He's saying, I've been troubled. He's troubled. He's troubled. And he says, let not your heart be troubled. And then what does he say? Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. My peace I leave you. 1427, not as the world I give you. So the peace that Christ gives surpasses all comprehension. Paul will explain it's a different kind of peace. Um, I, I think we really, as Christians, <clears throat> maybe you're anxious or get discouraged or get distracted or get ADD with life, we're missing this peace big time. He doesn't want you and me to live stirred up, anxious, worried, fearful. He wants you and me to live at peace. And that's not... You know, I mean, breathing exercises can help. Talking to a counselor can help. I'm not minimizing any of that for a minute. What I'm saying is this peace comes from him. And the corollary is kind of frightening. Uh, No one apart from Christ will ever know real peace. 
it'll be a piece of their own invention. It'll be soothing materialistically, uh, relationally, uh, monetarily, whatever they use to satiate. I remember years ago reading a book, I think it was by one of the Minerth and Myers, and one of the subtexts was called Love Hunger. The reason many of us are overweight and the many of eat too much is because it satiates us. And we're really longing for love. Not, not universally true, but it's a good illustration. Um, there's lots of ways to satiate and try to get peace. And listen, nothing makes me feel more at peace than a hamburger and french fries and a Jets pizza and, you know, I mean, just all the wrong food, right? I mean, I go, ah. But what about it? It's temporary. It's temporary. And there's an otherworldly peace that only he gives. Well, let me, let me do a high view of 10 lessons. And this will actually be quicker than it sounds. 10 lessons. It'll be pretty quick. Uh, I went through every one of these messages and the, and the whole letter, and I said, okay, what are things that, that help me, that minister to me, and maybe they do it to you as well. First of all, uh, like Peter's readers, we live in a place that is not our home. Uh, this is ultimately not where we belong. This life at best is a clean bus station. That's one thing you'll remember. Um, you know, we, we enjoy a lot of things in life, and material blessings and creature comforts are fine. The author of Ecclesiastes tells us to enjoy the stuff of life. Don't run to the, you know, we need to drive a 1998 Camry and live in a $200,000 house that's paid for out, you know, 100 miles from here. That's not the point. Uh, the point is we can enjoy the stuff of life, but this earth is at home. We're, we're meant for something else. We're built for something otherworldly. And part of this, I mean, some of these lessons spill over, but I really do think it's our horizontal view. It's hard to have a vertical view. It's hard to have a long view because here and now is what we experience. We feel it. We touch it. We hear it. We smell it. Secondly, we cannot overestimate the grandeur of his salvation. You and I can never overestimate or overstate or oversell the grandeur of his salvation. Do you go back to when you were saved? Do you review the people, the time, the experiences, the passages, whatever it was, when it meant something to you, when you woke up and you went, I've never seen that before. Amazing. I'm forgiven. I can still remember where I was when I comprehended Ephesians 2, 8, 9. I can still remember when I was when I read Galatians 2, 20 for the first time, and it was like it jumped off the page and lit up in neon lights and blew me away, for I'm crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. It just was like I had never understood this. I still don't fully comprehend it, but it began to open up layers of you live in the flesh, but you live by faith. There's this constant tension. And it's not me living in the flesh. It's I've been crucified. I've identified with him. It's what he did on my behalf in my place instead of me. And I live by faith in that, even though I'm still lockstep in this fleshly body. You cannot overstate the grandeur of the salvation. Peter reminded us in chapter 1, verse 11, that the prophets were not merely serving themselves. That phrase caught me a number of times. They weren't just serving themselves. Boy, are we a culture that serves ourselves. It's all about me, my, I. And here we see they weren't serving themselves but others. So the grandeur of our salvation begins. Why would he love the likes of you and me? Then it becomes, how do I live in such a way that's faithful to that salvation. And the third thing I would suggest is, who am I praying for and hopefully encouraging in their uh, experience to know Christ? And at the end of the day, two things are eternal, God's word and God's people. And um, that's, I think, what you want to lend your shoulder to wherever your sphere of influence is. We cannot overstate the grandeur of his salvation. Third, consider your present situation in light of your future condition. Consider your present situation in light of your future condition. Again, nothing new, somewhat of a spillover of other lessons. Um, I, do you like starting things, like starting a new project, starting, you know, building a house, starting a, planning for a trip, starting a new, you know, whatever? I like starting new things. I like finishing stuff. I like starting new things, and I like finishing things. 
I don't like the middle stuff, do you? Who likes the middle stuff? Who likes folding laundry? We all love clean clothes, but nobody likes folding laundry, right? Who likes mowing the yard? Nah, it starts out pretty exciting. About halfway through, you're done with it. And when you finish it, it looks really good afterwards. I really feel good. I got the yard mowed and edge and weed and all that kind of stuff. Nobody likes the middle. I've never been good in between. And again, I think it's, it's, it's not like we should be ashamed or feel guilty. It's an awareness that because we're in the moment, we're in the present, we don't look at the future condition. And notice I didn't say the future expectation, the future condition. It's done. It's sealed. It's completed. If there were any happily ever afters, they were, you know, children's stories. They were chick flicks, you know. Uh, That's why I don't like chick flicks. The in-between drives me nuts. We already know what's going to happen in the first four minutes. It's just the twist and turns to get there. I mean, you know, the two that are, you know, hate each other's guts are going to get married or whatever. You know, it's going to happen, right? It's like, oh, get on with it, will you? Like a friend of mine, I think I shared this with you when he went to see Titanic. His comment was, sink already, will you? You know, in between stuff. I, don't, I want to see the thing sink. That's what I came to pay the 10 bucks for. Consider your present situation a lot of your future condition. Do you look ahead? These people were displaced. They're not probably going to ever get to go back to what was home. Even if they went back to their geographic location, it's never going to be the same. When you look at people groups that have been displaced and live in, you know, 250,000 people live in refugee camps, which includes plastic tarps and walking to something to get water occasionally, living in mud and open sewage, when, where, where are they going to go? There's no home. There's no home. A very few percentage of them will get to some country that will take them in and welcome them and help them get started again. But they want to go home. We're bound to this earth. Um, These people, perhaps not as uh, atrocious as a Rwandan encampment or Sudanese or Libyans or Kurds or others who've been running other homes, but... Uh, to some degree, they don't get to go home. He'll wipe away every tear. He'll justify every injustice. He'll cure every ill. No more pain. No more dissonance in relationships. No more financial worries. No more IRA or retirement home or you know ALS or dementia worries. It's all gone. It's a future condition. And I think when you and I, and I'm, this is, applies to me as much as any of you, the here and now, the in-between gets my attention and my dislike when that future condition is where we're headed. It's kind of like when you get a kid in the car when they're young and you go on a, on a trip to see grandma and it's a 12-hour drive. What does that four-year-old say the entire time? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? They drive you insane. Before we had iPads and phones and cars and televisions and cars, Cindy would find these little games. I remember she got this great creative kit of things, and every day they had a little, uh, like a school bag and had little things in it. She put um, clothespins on a rope that went from the hangers in the back seat, and every 50 miles they can move a clothespin. I mean, she had all these things. You know, the license plates. On, you ever do that when you were a kid? You'd try to find license plates and stuff, and, and, or I, I, see, I see red or I spy red, whatever, and you, all these games. Well, I, Jesse, who's not here tonight so I can tell the story. Jesse, I mean, the clothespins, it was like, okay, 50 miles. When can I move the next one? When can I move the next one? We can move, it, it, it's displaced the anxiety of being there. When are we going to be there? When can I move the next clothespin? Ay, ay, ay. That was a bad idea. You know, why don't you go to sleep? Because nobody likes in between. Nobody wants to sit in the backseat of a car for 16 hours going to grandma's. And then you get there and you got to turn and come back. Oi. But when you get to grandma's, it's pretty cool because she cooks a lot of great food. She spoils your rotten. You run around barefoot. You don't take a bath for four days. I mean, you know, it's, it's everything you want is there. The parents abdicate because they're like, oh, somebody else can take care of my children for a while. We should take a lesson from our kids. Consider your present situation in light of your future condition. Fourth, suffering well 
results in a refined faith. Suffering well results in a refined faith. I don't like this lesson. Nobody likes to suffer. I don't like to suffer. You don't like to suffer. I don't like to watch other people suffer. But we always come back to this baseline. Cindy and I have been talking about this since the Santa Fe uh, shooting, uh, this prayer shaming that's going on on social media. Um, so when people are praying for, um, and, and we can parse this theologically, but they're praying for the victims and the victims' families. And, and so people say, pray for Santa Fe, pray for the school. Well, there's a lot of social media that it's prayer shaming. And they come out, you, you know, they're very nasty and very vitriolic and use a lot of horrible language, bashing people that are praying for what's happened. And, and there's lots, lots of implications. Where was God beforehand? What good do your prayers do anyway? And so they shame Christians for praying. And it just continues to be the marginalization of Christianity in our culture. This is just the norm. It's always going to be this way. I don't think it's ever going to change back, whatever back would mean. But in this whole condition, we get so upset about it, and we, and we start wringing our hands and go, God, it's hard to be a Christian. And we're fallen creatures in a fallen context. That's the foundation. We're fallen creatures in a fallen context. It's never going to be fair for you and me. There are times we'll be immune. There are times we'll be on the fringe. Times we won't be in the middle of the target. But it's never going to be fair in the sense that there's a reason. I think probably the greatest lesson for suffering. Now, sure, you and I can suffer because of self-inflicted things. We can sin. We can be stupid. We can, you know, whatever. But a lot of our suffering doesn't have a cause and effect, frankly. Because we're fallen creatures in a fallen context. I absolve you of overanalyzing why you and people you know suffer. Why is the insatiable question you're not going to find an answer to? In fact, I would suggest maturity as a Christian is when you stop asking why. You may never know. And frankly, sometimes when people will tell sin in me why certain things happen, I'm biting my tongue till it bleeds not to say something. Go, you dope, but it had nothing to do with that. You know, why, why? But some people have to connect the tissue and go, well, this is why it happened. Like somehow that gives you a, a justification or a closure or whatever to the situation because now I know what's happened. It doesn't really matter. All I'm trying to point out here is suffering refines two outcomes. We mature or we get bitter. If, it, if we don't let it refine us, we become bitter, withdrawn, isolated, angry, and it's very easy to do. I have great compassion on people who are that way. I spend a good percentage of my time talking to people who have all kinds of ailments and medical problems and emails. It's ridiculous how much suffering there is go goes on that people, intractable suffering, and there are no answers. And I tell them the same things. It's almost like a boilerplate that I tell myself. Just do the next thing. Got to be your own advocate. Be the nicest person in the world to the medical profession because they hold the keys to help you. If you're an angry, ticked, ornery, patient, you know, grumbling, mad person at the system, you're not going to get good help. But if you're nice to these people, you're sensible, you're not seeking drugs, you're asking good questions, you're learning, you're trying to get better, they're happy to help you. You're the outlier. You know, I give them all this little crib sheet. But it, when, you know, when you're really in pain and you're really suffering and it's hard to change, you don't want to do those things. And I watch people get bitter. And that scares me because I don't want to be that way. Five, we need a holy, H-O-L-Y, a holy fear. Remember we talked about this in chapter 1, verse 17. Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. And this, I think, is new for some people. Leighton summarized it. The fear here is a holy self-suspicion and fear of offending God. A holy self-suspicion and a fear of offending God, which may not only consist with assured hope of salvation, with faith and love and spiritual joy, which is the inseparable companion. The fear is not cowardice, he writes. It does not debase, but it elevates the mind because it drowns out our fears. It brings forth true fortitude and courage to encounter the dangers 
for the sake of a good conscience and that of obeying God. Somehow we've, and I don't, I don't think you can overstate the efficacy of grace, but bear with me in a poor illustration. We overestimate grace in the sense that we don't understand you know, shame and guilt and all the psych- psychological language we've, we've grafted into our thinking today. I'm suggesting there's a good holy fear of God. Not a tremulous, terrorizing, he's God with a hammer, he's going to hit me over the head when I do the wrong thing. That's how I grew up. Some of us grew up in religious systems where it was like, you do something wrong, <laughs> this malevolent, capricious God is going to bang you over the head. And you live in fear. That's not the kind of fear. It's this holy self-suspicion and fear of offending God. Um, some of you have had a great relationship with your father. Maybe you've got adult children that have a great relationship with you as a mom or dad. And, you know, and again, psychologists might take me to task a little bit on this, but just hear me out. Uh, is there something good and noble and honorable about a child that wants to please his or her mom and dad in a good way? Is that okay? I mean, not overstating the case, not something that's impossible, but isn't that, I mean, I, I longed for my dad's approval till he died. You know, um, I don't mean that in a you know twisted way. It was like, boy, hearing an attaboy from my dad was big medicine. I know with my kids, an attaboy from their dad is big medicine. Even when they, I've told them lots of times. I still tell them my daughter, I'm proud of you, respect you. I'm so, I'm so impressed with you. I mean, it's just like a wilting flower kind of perks up when I say those words. Um, how do we translate that type of relationship, again, properly, not, not weirdly, into uh, holy fear that we want to please our Father? Not, not, we're not going to make ourselves better. We're not going to make his love for us more intense. But this holy self-suspicion and fear of offending God. Okay, number six, new birth means new life. New birth means new life, chapter 123. New meaning, new priority, new desires. New life in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Growth is desire. Like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word so that they may grow in respect to salvation. Our little grandson is six months old now. And you know what he loves to do more than anything? Eat. He loves to eat. He loves to nurse or take a bottle. He is happy as can be doing either of those things. Because that... Six ounces. I mean, think about it. A liquid diet when your stomach's about that big, six ounces, love hunger, baby. He's full. And he gets milk drunk sometimes, and he's just kind of happiest guy on the planet, full belly. And then some of it comes back out every time, but that's okay too. And you know what? He's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. He longs for milk. That's the way he was genetically encoded by God when sperm and, and the egg hit and started to split and became a human, right right there, the moment a sperm and egg conceived, all the DNA was there for every one of you. Time and nourishment is all that's required. Moment of conception, life began. And all that's needed is time and nourishment. And if you don't grow, if you don't keep up with percentages today, and they've got this down to a science, to a sonogram, they can tell how the, the circumference of a child's skull, they can tell exactly how old that child is. Um, it's remarkable. And they can tell birth weight and growth weight and measurement and so forth and so on. And you're in such and such a percentile. And you know if you're not, because I had fam- extended family members who were not growing. And then you go on the nutrition plans and supplements and all these crazy diets, and eventually you take... You take hormones shots because your son or daughter is tiny, tiny, tiny. Because it's not healthy, not growing. Something's wrong if you're not getting enough nutrition to make that person grow. Spiritual metaphor couldn't be more apt. Like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that you may grow up in respect to salvation. New birth means new life. Now here's the interesting question I have for you and me. When do we stop growing? What does that mean? Because all of us at different chapters of our life have stopped growing, haven't we? None of us have a complete trajectory where we're getting mature, more and more mature, and one day we like Enoch, we just, we're gone. We're, we all do this. Well, maybe you don't. I do this. 
Most of my friends do this. And I don't think the corollary, it doesn't take rocket theology to figure this out. When you aren't growing, what's not happening? You're not being nourished by the word of God and sound doctrine, the way Paul summarizes it. You, you can't grow if you're not being fed. And that's not just sitting under a sermon or a Bible teaching or a tape or a radio program. You've got to ingest it. Seven, Christ is our example in suffering. Chapter 2, verse 21. Christ is our example in suffering. We talked about this at great length. Christ suffered for you, leaving as an example for you, for me to follow in his steps. We look at how Jesus suffered. Uh, the what would Jesus do bracelets for better or for worse. I still wish they would have been WWJT. What would Jesus think? Because we don't always know what he would do, but we have a pretty clear indication that just what he would think about something. And so when we face suffering, to think, what does this mean to follow in his steps? He didn't complain. He withdrew to his father. He prayed. He spent all night in prayer. Probably the garden prayer, the, the garden prayer agony, arguably was part and parcel of what he's facing, part and parcel of what he's doing by leaving his men. Eight, righteous living results in reward. Righteous living results in reward. Chapter 3, verse 9. It's another matter of faith. It, it becomes a little complicated to talk about rewards. And it's a great study in the New Testament to talk about crowns and rewards and different kinds of rewards. And the theory is, of course, we give those rewards back to Christ when we see him. But the interesting part about reward and a lack of clarity and specificity in the New Testament. This is Michael Easley heresy on thin ice. I think the reason we're not given more specificity and clarity is because if we knew what the reward was, we'd work for the reward itself, not for him. If I know I you know, hit, the, hit the thing and it rings the bell, I get the big stuffed animal. If I hit you know, the four cans or whatever with the little gun that's out of, out of sight and alignment, you know, you know, if I go to the circus and pay the tickets and get the thing, I know the prize I'm going to get. And then it becomes, well, look what I did. Look what I did. Again, thin ice may be a little heretical, but I just wonder if the reason the lack of clarity and specificity of rewards, because what happens is we have this continuum of legalism, liberty, and license. Legalism, liberty, and license, licentiousness. Legalism is a system of do's or don'ts we project on other people primarily. If you would live the Christian life this way, if you would do this and not do that, it's always if, then, and do's and don'ts. Licentiousness is because I'm a Christian, I can do whatever I want because God will forgive me. John 1, 9 is my, 1 John 1, 9 is my get out of jail free card. So licentiousness, do what I want. Legalism is just as insidious, frankly. In fact, Jesus got more ticked off at the legalist than he did the licentious. He had pity and compassion and mercy on the woman caught in adultery. He was livid with the legalists. So in the, and I don't want to call it the middle, but liberty, because it's not, it's not like tone down your legalism and tone down your licentiousness, it's just that you have liberty. That doesn't make any sense. But liberty is the freedom to live the life that Christ gave you. Galatians 5, it was for freedom that Christ set you free. The book of Ecclesiastes is about freedom that God gives us to enjoy the stuff of life. So there's this, it's not a balance between the two. That doesn't make sense. It's a position in my living in liberty. Liberty also means I can say no to things. I have the liberty to say no. I have the liberty to say yes. And Paul gives great practical instruction on it. If you think it's wrong, don't do it. Next, next chapter. Don't judge somebody else because they do it. Next chapter. The other part of the study that always intrigues me is the stronger brother in common practical terms typically is the weaker brother in practice. The weaker brother thinks he or she's stronger. And when you read those passages carefully, the stronger brother is the one that doesn't bother them, not the one that imposes the system on other people because they know more. That's all for free. Okay, number nine, the way we suffer has far-reaching ramifications. The way we suffer has far-reaching ramifications. Chapter 3, verse 14 and following. Um, the idea of suffering well. And we, again, we talked about this on and off throughout the series. But 
we just don't know. And you have people that suffer poorly and suffer well. And when they suffer well, you go, I don't know how you do it. And when they suffer poorly, you, you feel sorry for them. It's not like you're mad at them or anything. Um, I, I don't know. I've studied the idea of the fellowship of suffering uh, and talked to friends of mine who suffer far more and read extensively about it. I don't think anybody knows what it means. I just don't think we Who among us would say, I'm suffering with Christ in this present suffering? I mean, if you're planning a church in a very difficult culture and you're being martyred because, you know, you believe in Christ, maybe you could say that's the fellowship of suffering. I'm not ready to say, you know, chronic back pain or, you know, sinus conditions at this time of year or, you know, my children breaking my heart or whatever our story may be is suffering for the sake of Christ. But I have one theory. And we talked about this before. When you and I suffer to a place that no one else can comprehend, it doesn't have to be intensity. But when you feel like, when I feel like, nobody really gets me right now. Nobody understands. Um, I have found one of the first things we purchased, I purchased, we moved here to Franklin. The, the mall down in um, off 96 used to be a, a flea market mall. And now it's kind of, it's a Goodwill store and stuff. But there were all these junky flea markets in there. And I went in there. We walked around looking for knick-knack furniture. And I found this frame of original piece of sheet mu music. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen, the spiritual. And it sits on my desk to this day. <laughs> um, but when you're there and no one else can get it, how you handle that is really important. And I call it the exquisite nature of suffering. Only you and God understand. And I've told you the story about Cindy's and my friend Barbara with MS, trigeminal myalgia, if I said that right. She's in the bottom of a dark tunnel with me, God, and pain, she says. That's all I got in there, me, God, and pain. Nobody can help her. Medications, her husband, no one can help her. Doctors, me, God, and pain. And she says, when I'm out, I never really want to leave, but I really don't want to go back. I can't explain that. But I think I know what she means. There's an exquisite nature to suffering. And when Barbara suffers that way, or our friends, the traffickants suffer the way they do, and you have friends that suffer extraordinarily, and they still love Christ, and they still care about the people around them knowing Christ, and they have a megaphone into a world of pain that's otherworldly. That's the part of suffering that we miss, that he uses, and we'll never really know to eternity. Ten and last, humility is a Christ-like willingness, a Christ-like willingness to submit to God and live faithfully. Humility is a Christ-like willingness to submit to God and live faithfully. Humility is a Christ-like willingness to submit to God and live faithfully. Chapter 5, verse 6. The reassurance that to be humble under the mighty hand of God. It's kind of, it's almost comical. Be humble because God's hand is really powerful and big. Who do you think you are anyway? Be humble under the mighty hand of God. But that mighty hand is a hand of strength. He's real. He's present. He knows you. He loves you. He's aware of what you're going through. He's not surprised. He's not caught off guard. He doesn't pace heaven's floor, wringing his hand, going, no stupid people. Do you recall a couple of times in this series, I rhetorically asked the question, where did we get the idea that life was going to work a certain way? Any of you thought that question but me? Where did we get the idea that it was going to work out a certain way? You do these things, this things, and you have kids, and they love Jesus, and get married, and bring you back lots of children that love Jesus, and you have these family pictures like your friends do with 27 grandchildren around them on the beach in Naples, Florida, you know, and, and it doesn't always work out that way. Some of us can't have children. Some of us go through trauma and tragedy. Some of us lose children. Where did we get the idea life was going to work out a certain way? Uh, Cindy and I had a friend, friend stay with us last week. He's been a friend for over 30 years, and um, we were talking about this subject. Where did we get the idea that life was going to work out a certain way? And he said, he said, easily, remember that C.S. Lewis quote? And I go, no, I don't remember that C.S. Lewis quote. So he pulled it up, and we read it and talked about it. And this is the, the, the short quote I'm going to give you first, then I'm going to read the larger context. This is from Mere Christianity. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation 
is that I was made for another world. Listen again. If I find myself in a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is I was made for another world. That's why we got the idea life was going to work out. So, no, because the disappointments and expectations and plans that we make didn't quite actualize because it can't be actualized in this world. Now listen to the larger quote. The Christian says, creatures are not born with desires unless a satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing called food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. Here's a quote then. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care, on the one hand, never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings. On the other, never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a kind, a copy, an echo, a mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find until after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside, I must take it to the main object to press on to the country and that to help others to do the same. Pretty good stuff and a good way to close our study on First Peter. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters. Mm-hmm.